0: This episode is brought to you by vincent's are you in need of a trusted advisor for tax lending or wealth management vincent's advisors use their expertise to provide advice and direction when you need it most helping you to see your finances from every angle visit vincent's.com.au or drop them a line and they can connect you with the right advisor for your finances you would all be familiar with australia's status as a resources powerhouse Digging stuff up out of the ground has long been our specialty, with it not being uncommon for a figure on the AFR's rich list to have a resources background.
1: Our next guest, Ben Cleary, is a subject matter expert. Ben heads up Tribeca's natural resources business, but alongside David Alleywood, has been critical in growing the entire Tribeca business.
0: Ben's role in building Tribeca into a multi-billion dollar fund manager with expertise across asset management, wealth management, and corporate advisory has been significant. Ben's role in growing Tribeca's business throughout Asia-Pacific has been a catalyst for getting the business to today's current position. Through Tribeca,
1: Ben has cornerstone over $10 billion in natural resources transactions, working closely alongside financial advisors and companies. Today, he heads up the ASX-listed Tribeca Global Natural Resources Fund, investing across listed companies locally and overseas, direct investments in carbon credits, commodities and private sector debt.
0: Hello and welcome back to The Business Of. I'm Charlie. And I'm Will. On today's podcast, we unpack with Ben the genesis for his rise at Tribeca on the back of a shake-up in the financial services industry post the GFC.
1: We get Ben's thoughts on the regulatory environment in which local and global resources companies are operating.
0: Finally, we get Ben's take on the impact of electrification on demand for critical resources, such as copper, while considering potential issues associated with the supply of these commodities. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome back to The Business Of. Today we're very lucky to be joined by Ben Cleary from Tribeca. How are you, Ben? Very
2: well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, good.
1: Awesome. Thanks for coming on. So a question I'd like to start out asking our guests is what was their first ever job? Because I figure there's probably a good story behind it or something you learned that stuck with you throughout your career. So, yeah, we'll start there.
2: Uh, look, I think for first job or jobs were fairly typical. worked at McDonald's flipping burgers, worked in... Yeah some cafes, bakeries, uh, you know, pull beers at Dooley's up the road here. <laughs> um, probably the most formative job, uh, at least during universities, working at the fruit markets out at Rock Lee oh, yeah, um, nice you know, gave at a, I guess, a early stage, a good understanding of what real world demand and supply look like, yep. what seasonality, uh, looked like, uh, my first I guess, job, uh, in the industry, uh, was working at Bell Morgan, um, which was a stock is a stockbroking firm now, now Bell Potter. Um, yeah. I guess the, the two founders were sort of legends of the stockbroking industry, Paul Morgan and, um, Colin Bell and his, and his brothers, um, started, uh, you know, at the bottom in, in bookings, um, as a you know bookings clerk sort of graduated, uh, moved through the, you know, ranks, if you will, to uh, become a seats operator, which is, I guess, effectively the people in the colourful jackets that, yeah. uh, you know, you see in the, in the movies that it's, um, you know, now been automated uh, and then became a, a, a research analyst.
1: Yeah, nice. Yeah. Oh, nice. So did you, um, early on in your career, did you always know that you'd want to be researching and managing equities investments or was there another path you sort of, Explored as well.
2: Oh look, I from about grade eight, I think I had a, a, a equities portfolio. Oh really? <laughs> wow! <with, laughs> my parents were uh, clients of Wilson Htm. Yep. Um, oh, here yeah. in Brisbane. Nice and um, I guess my parents always encouraged me to to you know have my own yep. thoughts and suggestions around a a portfolio. So that that I guess led into studying um, I guess business and commerce at school, which led into university. um, And I guess working for a firm like Bell Morgan, uh, Bell Potter, uh, you know, which being a Queensland based office was very exposed to the resources industry, Mm. um, you know, in the late nineties and early two thousands really, caught my, or piqued my interest into, into the natural resources space and, and sort of led me, you know, to path, career path that I've been yeah.
0: on. Yeah, yeah, no beauty. And I guess the resources space, and then probably your, your expertise within that region was recognized um, by Tribeca. And I guess, can you talk through, I suppose that transition out of uh, Bell Morgan and how you ended up, you know, mm. re- running the size fund you are today? Yeah.
2: Yeah, so I, I moved in to, to Asia in in um, in the very early two thousands with Macquarie Bank, um, oh, gotcha. and was was there for the best part of a decade. Um, I guess at that time, uh, the the resources markets were really starting to, to boom on the back of Chinese urbanisation, yeah. and you know very early in in my career, I was so fortunate that every week every month um, I was in a different country whether it was China or India South Korea <laughs> Taiwan you know looking at auto plants looking at shipbuilding yards um, uh, trying to work out where commodity prices um, were going and this was all before the spot markets of iron ore or coal they were quarterly contracts um, at the time so it was a really you know, great period to, to see the industry and, and see it evolving from, um, you know, a contract-based industry to, to a spot industry and, you know, get that experience at a big organisation like Macquarie. Um, and I guess the, the transition to working um, or starting um, the resources fund and business at, At Tribeca really sort of came about after The global financial crisis and after some of the things that the global financial crisis led to Um, and specifically to resources Businesses inside investment banks like Macquarie, but Goldman Sachs Morgan Stanley all of those businesses had a pretty similar merchant banking approach to investing In the resources sector and and that was investing in equities in relatively early stage companies on the back of that being able to get a first right of refusal to providing those companies credit yeah um Mm -hmm. and then advising those companies whether it was m a whether it Mm. was um, their hedging hedging of the commodity hedging of 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 the uh foreign exchange and That was a great business yeah great business for for all of the banks you know at that time and what happened after the global financial crisis was it was almost an overnight issue where tier one capital definition of tier one capital changed Mm. Um, and that that was off the back of basel three um regulations um volcker dodd frank uh, you couldn't, as a as a firm, hold those equities um, or commodities or anything sort of mezzanine on your balance sheet as tier one capital yeah. a- any longer, and and that really sort of broke down the model. You saw most of the big firms really reduce their um, their exposure to to commodities overnight, and um, I guess that coincided with. You know the end of what was a you know very long bull market for for resources <laughs> off the back of chinese urbanization sort of 2000 2011 um and when those policies were sort of coming in 2011 2012 sort of coincided with downward moving commodity prices but also this tier one issue and you know if i think about the industry you know as an anecdote today you know your internal cost of capital if you're inside of a bank to own a small cap resources equity is probably 25% wow. at at the time you know, pre financial crisis it was probably 3%. Yeah. so the ability to to make money inside of these institutions from equities credit hedging <clears throat> has changed a lot mm. and you know the thesis for um, you know starting tribeca Global natural resources was really that we wanted just to replicate that merchant banking model um, that you know we'd seen so successful in in inside investment banks, but do it in a non-deposit taking yep fashion. Mm. Do it within a hedge fund structure, where you know our balance sheet was no longer the banks; it. it was yep. our investors. Um, and I guess 10, 12 years on, you know we've really. Replicated what we were doing at Macquarie. We've got, you know, a an, an equities business. We have a credit business. We have an advisory business, and we're trying to, you know, maximise the return to our investors by staying with companies, you know, through through the cycle and and um, you know extracting value, you know, right the way through the capital structure.
0: Yeah. Wow. No, no- Diversified business offering I find really interesting because like, as you say, um, like it was obviously very lucrative for those companies on the way through and then implementing it and pitching it to Tribeca. Um, well, I know you started and you're the founder of that that resources uh, piece. Did you have to pitch it to some of the seniors that, that were already existing mm. at Tribeca or how, can you talk us through that process?
2: Yeah, so I guess the the founder of Tribeca, David Aylwood, um, founded the business about 26 years ago. The genesis of, of our firm is, is in Australian equities. Yep. David still runs one of the, the largest small cap uh, equities funds in Australia. Um, we've got a um, one of the largest long short Australian equities funds um, run by Joombe Lu. Um, we have a micro cap business as well, um, but from a business perspective i guess it made a lot of sense for uh tribeca that you know had a good brand had a long track record of managing capital for their clients um successfully to become more global and more diversified and i guess the you know resources space is one where it's historically been difficult to Um, extract alpha from over long periods of time. Mm. Um, we've seen a lot of businesses come and go um, into the natural resources space, um, and I guess that diversified merchant banking approach to resources was something that um, you know David liked a lot. Yeah. Um, and you know we've we've sort of taken that model and then. Built out our business further by um, launching an Asian business over the last sort of six or seven years. So the business now on the asset management side is very much, you know, three pillars being Aussie Equities Resources and, and Asia. They're all complementary. Yeah. Um, we've, we've got a mix of equity strategies, uh, credit strategies, um, but there is that, that overarching cyclical Asia Pack. Um, small, medium, cap, thematic across all, all yeah. the three businesses. That runs consistent, yeah, mm. nice.
1: Yeah, so just on that um, natural resources fund, so the website explains the fund as adopting a long, short fund approach to investing globally across metals, mining, energy, soft commodities, and carbon, Focus on large capitalization companies and liquid equities. Can you please elaborate on this strategy and what sort of companies fall within that, yeah?
2: Yeah, so I guess we, we talk about the strategy as being Four things where, where you know, we're, we're, we are um, long short, you yeah. know, we're, we're global. Um, so about seventy um, percent of the stocks that we own are uh, are offshore. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're concentrated, so we, we only um, own about thirty to forty yeah, right. um, investments at any one time. That includes longs and shorts, and includes yeah. Could be equity, could be credit, it could be a commodity, um, yeah. and we are relatively high turnover. I think you know cyclical industries require um, you yeah. to trade to to extract that alpha opportunity. Yeah, um, you know, given given all of the seasonality and and cyclical aspects. So um, yeah, we we we've been going. Well, the strategy's um, I think just gone through 12 years, and I, I would say on average over that period uh, we have been about 65% invested in North America, yeah, um, and that would include U.S. equities and and, and Canadian, and the 35% mainly been skewed to Australia, yeah, um, but would include um a little bit of Europe as well yeah Yeah, and just
1: with um with the short positions because they they fascinate fascinate me because of how you know you know your, your downsides technically unlimited how do you go about looking for companies to short is it like overpriced commodities that they mine or yeah what's sort of the the memo there
2: um well first of all your upside's unlimited, but your yeah. downside is limited to 100%. And that is, you know, the inherent skew that you have, you know, with with longs and shorts. Yeah, you yeah. Know, your long book can always go up, mm. you know, more more than 100%. Um, and your short book, it actually is limited to availability of borrow. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the cost of that borrow um, and, and, you know, other, other sort of correlation factors, which... Which do structurally limit, yeah. you know, you, your return potential. You know, where where we see um, shorting as as a uh, um, an effective tool to to generate performance um, at at a fund level is well, we've got three three ways we implement our portfolio. The, the the first and and bulk of our portfolio is just fundamental views where we like bhp we think it's yeah. going to double where we're long or we don't like bhp we think it's going you know down for whatever yeah. reasons and we'll be short we uh, the second way we implement is we have a you know relatively large relative value um part of the portfolio which is literally we like bhp more than rio yeah. leading into the result it's catalyst rich so we're going to be long bhp yeah, cool. short Rio that's, that's relatively low vol, um, if if you will. Um, uh, However, it we like the relative value part of the portfolio, because it really focuses our investment team, you know, on shorter term catalysts Mm. and and longer term thematics playing out and that you know, that can be stock versus stock, it could be stock versus commodity. And we, we might, you know, think that the oil price is 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 going to be weak, but this particular company that produces oil is very catalyst rich, and yeah. so we'd be long the company, short the the commodity. Um, mm-hmm. And then the third part of our um, implementation is is what we sort of call special situations, which does include a lot of uh, equity capital markets or transaction yeah. deal flow, um, where you know if we're there's a placement in, in, in a stock on a Santos on a Friday night, it's an oil, oil producer. We take a hundred million dollars of stock, we may want to hedge the oil risk in the very short term by yeah. you know, shorting some crude or Brent to, a, against that, yeah. that position. So it's shorting is, you know, one part is mm. strategically trying to make uh, p and um, the second thing is as a risk management tool, yeah. um, and we tend to find that our short book turns over a lot quicker, yeah. um, in the main part than, than our long book because of that risk minimization aspect of, of shorting. Yeah. Yeah. And,
0: and you've spoken a fair bit there about, um, how your long book doesn't turn over as quickly. Um, I suppose one of the questions I really wanted to ask was when you get an idea for, for a stock. Um, that comes through your team, your research team. What's that process like for that to then be, um, you know, form part of your portfolio? Um, yeah, can you talk us through that?
2: Look, we our investment approach is fundamental, so we we have a three stage process. We start at the commodity level. Yeah, uh, as as you mentioned um, in the introduction, we we look at hard rock commodities soft commodities and and energy Um, and within those three groups we we tend to focus on about a dozen commodities at any one time so could be gold, copper, uranium, oil, gas, wheat um, what have you but I guess the one benefit that you have running a fund versus working for a bank is we don't have to do any maintenance research. We are free of conflict. We don't have to be thinking about iron ore constantly if we don't think that there's an opportunity. Yeah. Um, so we do tend to move around in terms of what commodities that we're focusing on at, at any one point in time. And from a commodity analysis perspective, I guess we take a pretty similar approach to you know how we analyze commodities at Macquarie, um, uh, you know, in terms of you know, forecasting what particular countries um, are, are going to be the biggest consumer. Obviously, China is a disproportionate consumer of almost all commodities, so we spend a lot of time analysing Chinese consumption. Um, mm. We then put an overlay on our fundamental commodity views. So, we obviously, there's a lot of correlation between um, with things like currencies and commodity prices the us dollars obviously heavily um, correlated to the gold price or japanese yen Mm -hmm. Um, chinese uh, isms or growth rates are going to correlate closely to to iron ore consumption Um, these sorts of things so we need to put a macro overlay on that fundamental view and then we put a positioning overlay uh, on which is looking at you know how financial investors um producers are positioned in the finance in the paper market of those yep. commodities um and that's become a much bigger part of the analysis piece i think in the last 10 years it's certainly changed within my career where you know you're now looking at commodities like oil will trade thousands of times more in the paper market than actual consumption. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Had, had an issue um, a couple of weeks ago in China where I think there was ten thousand times the annual consumption of eggs occurred in a one-hour period on on uh, the Dalian Exchange. Oh, so, eggs. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, ideally, from a commodity perspective, if if we if we really like copper. Um, from a demand and supply perspective, which we do, we'd, want, we'd ideally also have a macro view that you know, Chinese credit impulse was going to be strong over the next six to 12 months. Um, and we'd ideally want to see financial positioning short or underweight. Yeah. Um, and so if we can line those three up, then from a bottom-up perspective, we're just looking for stocks or companies, whether it's their equity or their credit, to express those views in the most talky, you know, best risk-reward manner. And from a stock perspective, we generally look at about 100 companies. So we've got five analysts, break that down roughly into about 20 companies each, um, which is not a lot, it is a lot when you want to go into the, uh, levels of detail that we want to, because really, you know, our edge is to know more about companies than anyone else. That's, that's the information edge. If we start looking at hundreds of companies, we're going to lose that information edge. It yep. gets diluted the more companies that we look at. And the other thing I, I always say is that being a cyclical industry, the the companies you love today are often the ones you, <laughs> you're gonna be your best short ideas tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So it's much better understanding the asset base, understanding management teams, understanding where the skeletons, you know, mm. are in particular projects and, and and compounding your knowledge over long periods of time on on a small number of, of, of companies and assets. So once we've, you know, got that commodity view, we're expressing it bottom up generally in in generally equities not credit not commodities you know we, we've got a big skew to, to to equities where we see you know just a better risk reward yeah on, in in on both the longer and short side
0: nice one mm-hmm. yeah.
1: yeah you mentioned you guys are um big fans of copper at the moment we read in one of your recent investor presentations that the energy transition demand for copper now outweighs the chinese demand for property can you help rationalize that little start for our listeners
2: yeah well electrification is i think the biggest investment theme for at least the next decade yeah possibly multi-decades um if you think about electricity consumption for the last 30 years from from sort of 1990 to 2020 there was negative electricity consumption growth in the G20, ex-China. Mm-hmm. So that was on the back of efficiency gains, uh, white goods, air conditioners became more efficient. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: that makes sense.
2: In the last three years and on our forecasts for at least the next 15 years, electricity consumption is going to grow up 3 4% minimum. Yeah. As we drive more electric vehicles, we have to charge them more, we use more AI um yeah. all these all these um you know big thematics are requiring electricity and to copper um or, sorry to your question why is that so much bigger than chinese urbanization was mm. for say iron ore in the 2000s mm. is because it's a global thematic yeah. it's not just happening in china or india it's it's everywhere the mm. whole world is electrifying and we'll need you know, really to upgrade their, their grid. And if you look around the G20, grids are old. Mm. Um, and we're already seeing, like we, we, we saw, it's now three years ago that, that, that a state like California, um, you know, which has got the biggest um, market share of electric vehicles, mm. um, within the first year and and it was a very small number of market share less than five percent or vehicles electric but within the first year they're already having issues with their grid that you could only charge on odds or even days Um, so there's going to have to be huge investment into grids to handle this electricity consumption growth that's going to play out you know over the next decade at least and to our mind there is really no other commodity that you can build the grid with other than copper or gold there is nothing that that um, that can transfer electricity no no other um, you know commodity that we are aware of other than copper obviously gold's too expensive in a relative sense to copper so you know we we think copper is is the Far and away, the, the best way to play electrification, yeah. Um, and it just so happens that there's a real supply issue with copper as well. Um, if you think about the top 10 mines in the world today, mm. the average age of discovery was um, before World War II, um, Jesus. <laughs> so it takes a very long time to find these yeah. copper mines. Um, copper mines are getting deeper. They get, it's getting more expensive to produce copper, um, and we've already gone through um, a pretty big recycling um, uh, time in the in in the copper market. Recycling is yeah. already about twenty percent of supply. Really, wow! Um, and th- that's actually been coming lower um, yeah. in 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 recent years. So we're really reliant on primary mine. Almost supply for copper um as as the world electrifies and Mm. and we think it's going to require a much higher price um than the current price of copper to incentivize um new mines to to come online and i think the other you know the other big thing right across the natural resources sector is um that whilst there is a an acknowledgement from governments that um you know, we need we need more mines as we electrify. The level of red tape and bureaucracy um, has never been higher. Yeah. Um, you know, the old sort of rule of thumb in, in Western Australia was that, you know, from, from drill hole discovery to, to first production was somewhere around three years. That's closer to seven or eight years now in north america you're looking at 15 years really so you know whilst the biden administration are in on one um side of their mouth are saying yeah inflation reduction act throw throw helicopter money at all things um battery feedstock on the other side mines are getting delayed permitting is yeah. taking longer red tapes increasing so the the supply issue for Electrification is 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 going to become, I think, more and more of an issue as we get towards the late late twenty twenties.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And I suppose, yeah, I, I guess that was that was a, a massive a massive component of what we wanted to touch on, and you've already covered a lot of it. But yeah, the energy transition in general. Um, I suppose corporates um, like what? Yeah, what do we need to do more of to help motivate um, these corporates? who, you know, invest in these large capital expenditure projects, such as whether it be new exploration activity or, or, um, yeah, further, um, energy transition initiatives. Yeah. Can you talk us through what some of the potential policies or motives that could be given to these companies to make them uh, more willing to commit that capital?
2: Look, I think the without stating the obvious, the, the first thing will be the need for higher prices. Yeah. Um, current copper price, current nickel prices, current aluminium prices, zinc, lead, all of these, um, you know, base metals that are crucial to the electrification story um, are at prices that really don't incentivise new supply to come online. Yeah. Um, you're gonna need significantly higher prices um, before it's economic to spend, you know, the amount of capital that you know, needs, needs to be spent on, on, on these new projects, um, to come online. And, and those inflationary forces, particularly, you know, within the mining industry, you know, the three, three big inflationary forces is always sort of the oil price, um, labor and, and consumables, all of those three things seem as though they're going to be structurally higher, um, over the next decade, I don't see the oil price. Give or take under $80 for much of the next 10 years. I don't see labour prices coming down in a hurry, and I don't see you know value chains as 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 the world um, you know deglobalizes as as getting any cheaper. So you know capital um, you know costs are going to remain high. So you know in answer to your question, you know what needs to change? I think prices need to change. Possibly, you know, from a regulatory point of view, you know, we do need to see red tape um, and permitting issues um, improve. Yep. Um, and you know, I I I read uh, you know a paper that the Hancock Group um, put out um, last year saying that you know there was five thousand different approvals that they needed to bring their mine into production wow. and if they were to bring it into production now it would be closer to 10,000 so these permitting issues have just you know they've, they've compounded for, for <laughs> want of a better word um, and, and they've become a structural issue it's not just Australia it's a global phenomenon so you know in the absence of those permitting and regulatory issues um reducing it's it's going to be hard to bring on big big projects in a in a higher cost world
0: yeah and i suppose yeah on on structure um one thing that will and i found quite interesting was the the listed investment company structure um through which the resource your natural resources uh, fund operates can you shed some light on that and what the rationale was for um using that structure um for the fund
2: sure look we have um three investor groups uh, if you will as a business yeah um, as a fund we, we you know we're lucky enough to manage capital for um, you know some of the largest families and in individuals in in Australia and Asia and and North America we have a couple of hundred family offices as as clients um, we have wow. we manage capital <laughs> for a couple of sovereign wealth funds, some of Australia's biggest pension funds. So we have some, some big institutional clients. And then we also have um, retail clients, which in, include both our unlisted funds and, and, and our listed fund. I, I think the, the listed uh, version of our investment strategy is um, unique and interesting for for the resources industry. Mm. Um the benefits from a manager's point of view is that given it's such a cyclical industry we can take longer term views which we think you know maximizes returns for for shareholders i think on the on the flip side that investors get exposure to a portfolio that's global um that in, invests across the capital table it's not just long only equities it's it's long short it's credit, it's commodities, yeah. um, and it should, through the cycle, provide you know what we think is is a you know reasonable return with with you know reasonable income stream given the risk profile. So look, I think yeah the the reality is that the LIC space um, you know in Australia has has you know come under. I guess, question from from different parts of the market, given that a number of LICs are trading at discounts to their NTA. Yeah, Um, you know, we've seen or, you know, we've we've researched the the listed um, fund market extensively before we listed our company. You know, there's no doubt in, in North America, Europe, that there are cycles for the broader, you know, listed closed end market that they can go from trading at big discounts to, to premiums. We think within Australia, there's about 130 um, LICs, 130, 140. Um, there's no doubt that the 25 odd LICs that have NTAs of more than 300 million trade at a tighter discount. Yeah. Um, we, uh, you know, give or take a, around 175 million. We want to get into that plus 300 space. Um, market cap space where we see you know more liquidity, tighter discounts, and given our investment strategy and approach, we believe that we should trade at somewhere in and around, if not at a premium to NAV. We have in our you know short history as a listed company traded at premiums for small amounts of time it's generally been when performance has been good (laughs) and um you know unfortunately the last sort of 12 18 months you know performance for our listed company has 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 been you know below where we want it to be um as that you know improves into the future we think that the structure you know should be a great um investment proposition for our retail investors.
0: Love it. Thank you. like That provided a really good insight into the rationale for it and yeah, how it works. Thanks. Yeah
1: for sure. Um, a question I'd like to end on, Ben, is if you had one piece of advice to give the 20-old version of yourself, what would that be?
2: Look, I think the the power of you know compounding is is something that all the great investors talk about. Um, but You know, not just compounding your own, uh, you know, knowledge base. Obviously, reading, reading, getting more information. That that knowledge base sticks with you for life. Mm. So the earlier you start building that that knowledge base by reading, researching the sorts of industries or 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 companies that you're interested in, the better. Um, From an investing perspective, I think it's the same. You know, I think reality is you know in in your late teens 20s you're generally sort of unencumbered financially at least by Mm. by kids or mortgages (laughs) or school fees so you do have this unique time in your life that you can actually allocate um you know spare capital Mm. into investing in companies and and you know any good investor is going to tell you that 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 compound effect once you once you get into your 40s and 50s and 60s from starting earlier is going to be mm. really meaningful so yeah I, I would say just taking that as seriously as possible or yeah. you know, as, as much as you can um, will, will lead to returns um, later in life yeah
1: <laughs> sure That's it's great. a great note to end on appreciate it Ben and, and thanks for your time as well we learned a lot today about yourself but also Tribeca and the Natural Resources Fund so we really appreciate it yeah Thanks, for, Thank thanks for coming on, Ben. Really appreciate take. It. Yeah, <laughs> first take. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to The Business Of. If you enjoyed the show, please consider rating and following us on your chosen podcast platform, LinkedIn and Instagram, as it helps others find us.